On this Palm Sunday, as we prepare our hearts for the word, let's take some time to bow in prayer. Um, Father in heaven, we come together uh, just thankful, Lord, as we are reminded of who you are. You're a holy God. You're set apart. And Father, in light of that, we thank you for, uh, despite knowing who we are in relationship to you apart from Christ, we thank you for Christ and what he has accomplished on our behalf. Uh, as we enter into the Holy Week, uh, we take time to remember that Christ died for our sins and rose again from the dead. And in light of that, uh, we thank you for the salvation we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Father, as we this morning transition from worship in song to worship in your word, we pray that you'd prepare our hearts and our minds for what you would have for us, that you would remove any distraction, get us out of the way. What we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and who we are not, we pray that you'd make us, and we ask it all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. It's been said that life is really not worth living until you find something worth dying for. You know, the letter of 1 Peter that we've been studying is written with the conviction uh, that because of who Christ is and because of what Christ has accomplished through his death, his burial, and his resurrection, that Christ is worth living for. Christ is worth dying for, and Christ is worth suffering with. You know, Scripture reminds us that as believers all throughout the New Testament, we are not exempt from adversity. We're not exempt from suffering. We're not exempt even from persecution. In John chapter 15, verse 20, Jesus told his disciples, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul, writing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, yes, uh, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And so knowing that suffering undeservedly, suffering for the cause of Christ is not a question of if for the believer, but when for the believer. When suffering comes, how do we prepare for it and how do we endure it when we find ourselves in the midst of it? I'd invite you this morning to the letter of First Peter chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 13 to 17 as we're going to answer that question together. You know, as you make your way there in your Bibles, Peter is writing to a people who are facing uh, the pressures of press persecution. They are experiencing suffering, but the cause of their suffering and the reason for their persecution is not because they are sinful and therefore they are experiencing the consequences of their sin. Rather, the reason they are suffering and facing a growing persecution is because of the growing hostility in the culture around them towards the things of God and the things of his word. And as the hostility of the culture grows stronger against the Lord and the people of God and the things of God, suffering grows as well. This morning, as we turn to the letter of 1 Peter, we're reminded that we're living in a culture that's growing increasingly hostile towards the things of God, towards the things of his word. And if there's a time when we needed this message, the time is now. 
If there was a time when we need to be reminded how to prepare for suffering if it should come and how to respond to it when we find ourselves in the midst of it, that time is now. So how are we encouraged to prepare for and endure suffering when we find ourselves in the midst of it, if ever we find ourselves dealing with it in light of a growingly hostile culture towards God and the things of his word. Would you stand in honor of the reading of the word? First Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. And all who, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better... If it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. The word of the Lord, y'all may be seated in the presence of God this morning. Today is Palm Sunday and it's a, a day where we take the opportunity to reflect on and remember the final week of Jesus' life as he enters into Jerusalem uh, the same week as his crucifixion and a week before his subsequent resurrection. And we're reminded that on a day like Palm Sunday, while the people celebrated him as he entered into Jerusalem on that Sunday, as they took palm branches and laid their clothes down on the ground as he entered into Jerusalem, the same ones who would cry out Hosanna at the beginning of the week, cry out messianic titles, blessed is he who comes in the name of of the Lord. As Jesus fulfills the, the, the prophecy of Zechariah 9 9, riding on a donkey, as the people would declare the King of Israel. Later that week, by the same folks, he would hear the shouts, crucify him by Friday. And when we take time on a week like this to reflect on the person and work of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished through his death, his burial, and his resurrection, we're reminded this morning that Christ is worth living for, Christ is worth dying for, and Christ is also worth suffering with. And in light of that conviction, how is it possible to prepare for and endure suffering when and if we should ever find ourselves dealing with it. The first thing we see in our text is by means of becoming followers of what is good. As believers and as Christians, we are to follow what is good. We are to pursue that which is good. Uh, Peter presents this idea in the form of a rhetorical question. He says, and who is he who is able to harm you if you become followers of what is good? What Peter is saying there in that rhetorical question is this, if you become followers of good, you have no reason to fear anyone who may seek to harm you, even if you should experience suffering for the cause of Christ, undeserved suffering. Uh, To really understand what Peter is saying in verse 13, the first thing we need to take a look at is the context of the question. The first word in verse 13 is the word and, and it connects us to the previous verse in verse 12 where Peter is quoting Psalm 34. And in quoting Psalm 34, Peter reminds these believers that God 
protects and God provides for those who are righteous, those who are in a right standing with him, those who are followers of what is good. So the reason why those who follow what is good do not need to fear those who may seek to harm them is because of a God who protects and provides for them. Let me go a little deeper. In verse 12, it says it this way. It says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. That means the Lord protects the righteous, those who are followers of of what is good. When it says the Lord's eyes are on the righteous, it doesn't mean that the Lord is like a strict taskmaster, keeping his eyes fixed on those who belong to him, those those who are believers, waiting for them to step outside of line so he can punish them whenever they do so. But this speaks of, of, of the Lord who keeps his eyes on them so that he will keep them from anything that should seek to harm them. Uh, I've got a few kids, two of them are got a five-year-old and a three-year-old. They're always running around. And so especially when we're in public locations or, or when there's a lot of people around us and, and we can't hold their hand, our eyes are kept on them. And our eyes are kept on them because we are going to protect them from anything that should harm them. And because our eyes are on them, they have no reason to fear anything that should seek to harm them. You know, at night, sometimes my three-year-old, she'll tell me, Daddy, I'm scared and so I can't sleep. And if she's being genuine, I take some time to chat with her about it. And I tell her, there are two encouragements I can give to you. The first one is that the Father is watching over you. And the fact that the, our Heavenly Father is watching over you, nothing can get to you unless it first goes through Him. And I say, here's another encouragement. Not only is the father watching you, but he's provided me as your earthly father to watch over you. And you better believe this, because daddy is the strongest person they know, and they don't know anyone stronger than daddy. I let them know, listen, the only one stronger than me is God, and you better believe not only will he keep you from harm, but nothing is going to harm you unless it first goes through me. And my daughter has the peace of mind to sleep knowing that nothing can reach her unless it first goes through me. What a helpful reminder for us as believers to be reminded of his protection and who is able to harm you if you are followers of what is good. The Lord is our protector and so it, text, it tells us he's our protector. He's also provider for, his, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. In other words, when you cry out to the Lord in a moment of need and you pray to the Lord, he hears your prayers and he answers according to his will. What a wonderful thing. Who should you fear? Who is there to harm you if you are followers of good, knowing that he's not just your protector, his eyes are on you, but he's your provider. He's going to take care of your every need. And then finally it says, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who are those who do evil? Those who do not follow that which is good. Not only do they not follow that which is good, they seek to harm those who do what is good And we're reminded in light of this text that the Lord is against them and he's for us. It's a reminder if God is for us, who can be against us? 
Who is he who can harm you? If you are a follower, if you become a follower of what is good, you can be reminded that he is our protector, he is our provider, and he is the one who watches over us and protects us in all things, even if we should experience undeserved suffering. Not only do we see the context of the question, we also see the content of the question. And who is he who is able to harm you? Now, I want you to know when that question is presented, it's not denying the reality of human suffering. After all, in the next verse, it's going to say, when you suffer, count yourself blessed. Consider yourself blessed. In verse 17 that we just read, it will tell us that we're going to see in a moment that the will of God is sometimes for us to experience suffering for doing what is right, for doing what is good. So this is not denying the reality of suffering. We're reminded suffering is inevitable. But what this is affirming is the sovereignty of God even in the midst of suffering. And because God is sovereign even over suffering, we can Trust him even when we face it. Uh, we already quoted Romans 8.31. Uh, what then shall we say if God is for us? Who can be against us? That speaks of the sovereignty of God. Yes, there are some things that can harm us, but God is greater even than that. Matthew 10.28 says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And so Jesus gives us this wonderful encouragement. You don't have to fear people because all they can do is kill you. (laughs) God says, here's the encouragement. While they can kill you, they can't destroy your soul. So the one you need to fear is not the one who can kill your body, but who can destroy your body and your soul in hell. God says, fear him. He is sovereign. So that's a helpful reminder for us that no matter what people seek to do to us, to harm us for the cause of Christ, they cannot affect our eternal inheritance, our eternal reward. (laughs) You know, when you see life in the context of eternity, you fear, not even death itself, that even if you should be martyred for your faith in Christ, what a wonderful encouragement that you will be present with the Lord forever and ever. In Jeremiah 17, verses 7 to 8, it speaks of the blessedness that comes to those who trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. And so when Peter asked the question, the rhetorical question, who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? We are grounded and rooted in the Lord. And being grounded and rooted in the Lord, even if we should experience drought, even if we should experience adversity, even if we should experience storms of suffering, we can be reminded that God is going to provide for us in the midst of it. So who is he who will harm you if you are a follower of what is good? So having time to talk about the content, let us now talk about the condition. And the condition of the question is if you become followers of what is good. What does it mean to become a follower of what is good? Now if we connect it back to verse 12, to be a follower of what is good is to be righteous. Is to be in a right standing with God and to continue in a right standing with God as you pursue and you follow that which is good. 
But it's a reminder this morning that Peter is not speaking to unbelievers. He's speaking to believers. And so if you want to become a follower of what is good, you first have to receive salvation and forgiveness of sin. The Bible tells us that all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. That the wages of sin is death and eternity without God and his people forever. But the gift of God is everlasting life. And knowing that all of us are born into this world in need of forgiveness because we're broken, we're separated from a holy God until we trust in the solution that God has provided through the person and work of Jesus Christ, we cannot be in a right standing with God. We cannot be righteous. We cannot pursue that which is good. And so the first step for us as individuals is to receive salvation Receive forgiveness of sins by putting our faith and our trust in Jesus as our Savior and Lord. And so the first step and the invitation for anyone here today who is, is not a follower of Christ and has not received the forgiveness of sins through the substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross who died for your sins and rose again in newness of life is to receive that free gift. But the second step in pursuing that which is good is by walking in obedience to his word. If we take a look at verse 13 in the context of the previous verses that we covered last time we were together, in verses 8 to 12, we're reminded how believers are to pursue that which is good by having the right attitude towards fellow believers. We're to be sympathetic towards one another, tender-hearted, expressing brotherly love and treating one another like family. To pursue that which is good and to become followers of what is good is to have the right attitude towards adversity, mistreatment, and suffering. That we should not repay evil for evil or we should not repay insult for insult, but we should respond to those who mistreat us unjustly with blessing. Praying God's favor over them and, and praying for God's salvation for them. And we should also have the right attitude towards life in difficult times as As Peter quoted Psalm 34 in verses 10 to 12, what he was doing there was reminding these believers that the good life, if you're going to love life and experience good days, it's not dependent on the absence of pain or problems. It's dependent on the presence of God who watches over you. And so what a wonderful thing to be reminded. That's what it means to to, to become a follower of what is good, to pursue that which is righteous. First, take your first step by receiving salvation and forgiveness of sins and then pursue what is good by walking in obedience to the word of God as we read about it in scripture. And so, how do we prepare for suffering? How do we, how do we, how do we, how do we endure it in times when we are in the midst of it, first and foremost, by following what is good. Before you get there, continue to walk in obedience to God and his word. If ever you should experience it, continue to walk in obedience to the Lord. Continue to walk in obedience to his word. And the way to do that, my my, my one application here in light of his word, is to remember our motivation. And our motivation is to be so impressed and stand in awe and wonder of who Christ is and what he has accomplished on the cross that we say yes Because Christ, of what you accomplished through your death, your burial, and your resurrection, you are worth living for. 
Yes, Christ, because of what you accomplished through your death, your burial, and your resurrection, you are also worth dying for. And yes, Lord Jesus, you're also worth suffering with. You know, in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 to 25, it speaks of Moses. It says, by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. What a wonderful, faithful example for us to follow. A man like Moses who was unwilling to enjoy the temporary pleasures of sin and instead experienced the temporary sufferings and the afflictions of the people of God. I want you to know Jesus is worth it. Because of who he is and what he has accomplished through his death, his burial, and his resurrection, he's worth living for, he's worth dying for, and he's worth suffering with. So first and foremost in our verse 13, follow, become a follower of what is good. Secondly, in verse 14, consider it a blessing to suffer with Christ. Consider it a blessing to suffer with Christ. The text continues on and says in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. We have a couple reminders in verse 14. The first one is suffering is inevitable. You know, we're reminded as believers and as Christians, at least in God's word, that when you become a believer, when you become a Christian, it's not an insurance policy that you won't face adversity in your life. But what scripture clearly points us to is that suffering is a reality that we face as believers, especially in a growing hostile culture towards the things of God and the things of his word. And so we need to know how to respond. And so the response, it says, is is don't respond thinking that you're cursed. Respond believing that you are blessed. Consider yourself blessed if you should experience suffering. John 16, 33, it says, these things I've spoken to you, Jesus says, that in me you have, may have peace. And then it says, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Suffering is inevitable, that's what verse 14 tells us, but verse 14 also tells us to consider ourselves blessed when we experience it. How is it possible to consider yourself blessed in the midst of suffering? You think of a text like James, chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, that says, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. We're reminded we're not thankful for the, for the suffering we experience or the pain we feel, but we're thankful for the results it brings. And so how is it possible for us to experience blessing in the face of suffering? First, I'd like to give you three reasons biblically. The first is God uses suffering to remind us and reward us. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, it tells us that God allows suffering to remind us, to remind us that we are not cursed, but that we are blessed. You know, our first response, if we should experience suffering for doing what is right and for following what is good is, Lord, why me? God, how, why would you punish me? I'm, I'm living a righteous life. Job had similar questions in mind. God, why am I suffering the way I am suffering? And what the text says, this is how you prepare, this is how you deal with it. Consider yourself blessed when you're facing undeserved suffering for the cause of Christ. You're not cursed, you're blessed. You are a recipient of the favor of God. 
and you are also pleasing in his sight. What a wonderful thing to know that I found favor in God's eyes and I'm pleasing in his sight when I'm suffering unjustly, when I'm suffering with him. Consider yourself blessed. God uses suffering to remind us. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 said, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. Me, my natural response, my fleshly response is, I'm not blessed, I'm cursed. God, why are you allowing this to happen? Jesus says, consider yourself blessed. You're pleasing in my eyes. You're a recipient of my favor. And say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. So God's, God uses suffering not just to remind us, but to reward us in verse 12 of chapter 5. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Oh, what an encouragement. Suffering and its purpose is as you endure the suffering, the reward is much greater. And if you suffer for the cause of Christ, the text tells us you're in good company. The prophets prior, they experienced suffering, so consider yourself blessed. Why? Because suffering gives us these reminders and reminds us of the rewards that we have. Secondly, God uses suffering to strengthen us. Just mentioned James chapter 1. It says, verses 2 to 4, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. God uses suffering to strengthen us. That's a blessing. And then thirdly, God uses suffering to conform us. Romans 8.28 says, And we know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who have been called according to his purpose. Then we see how God works all things for our good. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So how does God work all things for our good? In order to give us plenty of money in the bank account? Does God work all things for our good in order to give us peaceful relationships and make sure that we have an insurance plan against adversity? No. He works all things for our good, the good and the bad that we experience to conform us into his image, into his likeness. If we go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, it says, For what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. God uses suffering to conform us, to be like him. We are most like Christ when we suffer with him. What a wonderful thing to be reminded that in times if we should ever experience suffering for the cause of Christ, we should consider ourselves blessed. Consider yourself blessed. You know, uh, this past month, I was watching the NCAA wrestling championships and there was uh, one guy who was competing, a guy by the name of Aaron Brooks. He was competing for his third consecutive NCAA championship. And, and after he won the championship, he, he stepped off of the stage and an ESPN reporter came up to him and began to interview him. And as he interviewed him, he asked him questions. And, and what, what Aaron Brooks did was he, 
he gave God the credit, and then the, the interviewer asked him about his faith, and this is what he had to say as he's still breathing hard. His, this is his testimony. He saw that opportunity as his pulpit. He saw it as his opportunity to share the truth. He says, Christ's resurrection is everything. Not just his life, but his death and resurrection. You can only get that through him, the Holy Spirit, only through him. No false prophets, no Muhammad, no anyone else, only Jesus Christ himself. You know, after he said that, <laughs> he got a lot of criticism. Journalists came after him. Not going after his faith and talking about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the hope in Jesus Christ, but the fact that he said Muhammad is a false prophet. And you know how Aaron Brooks responded to the controversy and to the criticism? He didn't get offended by it. He considered himself blessed. And in just two sentences, quoting scripture, this is what he had to say. In John 8, 15, 17, he quoted it, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Aaron said, I'm in good company. And then John 8, 32, it says, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. What is the truth? In John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. This is a man who saw that opportunity as he has a, a post-mat interview to share the gospel of Christ saw that as his platform, not just to, to affirm the gospel and the hope of Jesus, but to warn people about false prophets like Muhammad. In times when you should experience suffering for the cause of Christ, count yourself blessed. Not just count yourself blessed as we continue to read. It also tells us to refrain from Refrain from worry and panic. And Peter goes on to quote Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 to 13, and says, And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. In other words, what Peter is saying there is, is don't respond in panic or worry. In uh, the prophet Isaiah, uh, they were experiencing not just Isaiah, but the, the surrounding nations were threatening Israel, was threatening Isaiah. And Isaiah finds himself in a difficult position. And the instruction given to him is this, do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The word troubled there is to find yourself in a state of panic, to find yourself in a state of worry. It's the same word that you see in John 14, verse 1 where it says as Jesus is preparing to leave his disciples, he's about to be crucified, he's going to die, and he's going to rise again from the dead. And he says this in John 14, verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. He goes on to say how they can do that. You believe in God, believe also in me. The instruction for us is in the face of suffering, don't focus on the suffering. Don't focus on the people. Focus on your God. What we have a tendency to do with our problems, with our difficult circumstances, is we glorify the problem. We talk about it. We complain about it. We're always discussing it. And what we're called to focus on is not on the problem, but on the problem solver. Because when you magnify the problem solver, when you make much of Christ and him crucified, make much of who God is and who Christ is, you magnify him. You minimize those things that threaten you. And you recognize in proper perspective that those threats, those nations in Isaiah's day, those persecutors 
in Peter's day or anyone who should come against those who are followers of Christ are nothing in light of who God is. Don't panic, we're reminded, and also don't worry. You know, when it comes to those who don't panic and worry in the face of suffering, I could give you some examples of individuals who are suffering all around the world, but they're wonderful biblical examples as well. I think of Acts chapter 12. You know who's writing first, Peter? It's the Apostle Peter. And Peter is a good example of a, of a man who, in the face of persecution and the pressures of persecution mounting, and even in the face of death, does not panic, does not worry, but is focused on the Lord. In chapter 12 of Acts, verse 1, it says, Now about that time Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So he kills James, the brother of John. Then it says in verse 3, And because he saw it please the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. So Peter speaking from experience here. And he says, Now it was during the days of unleavened bread, so when he had arrested him, he put him in prison. He delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter's a dangerous guy. You've got to watch him 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And then verse 5 says, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, not to have a conversation with him, but to kill him, it says that night, what was Peter doing? I don't know about you, I'd be worrying a little bit. I'd be panicking. Look what happened to James. What's going to happen to me? It says Peter was sleeping. What a wonderful thing to be a, a, a child of God. <laughs> And know who he is. And be so focused on him. And, and, and to experience the threats of those who have power. Even governing authorities. And still be able to sleep in the midst of it. And what ends up happening to Peter? He gets released. And those who were praying for him. If you know Acts chapter 12. He ends up coming to the door. And they don't believe it's him. They don't, maybe they don't believe in the answer to prayer. And he's there. And they think, oh, it must be an angel. And the reality is it's him. Peter is a good example of man who did not respond in worry or panic, but trusted in the Lord. It always brings me back to Jeremiah 17 that we already quoted. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. You sleep soundly. And whose hope is in the Lord, he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes. Peter is a good example, but so are Daniel's friends. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, they're there along with all the people to, to bow down to the golden image, but they refuse. Do they respond in, in worry? Do they respond in panic? No, in Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 to 18, it says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered to the king and said to him, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Yes, we are to submit to governing authorities. We saw that in, in chapter 2, verses 13 to 18. But, but whenever government should ask you to do that which is contrary to the will of God or the word of God, you obey God over man. And then in verse 17, it says, If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. He will deliver us from your hand, O king. Are they panicking? Are they worrying? Verse 18, but if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set 
up. What a wonderful example of those who trust in the Lord, who do not respond in panic or worry. And so, how do we prepare for suffering? How do we endure it when it comes, refrain from panic or worry? And then as we continue to read in verse 15, acknowledge Christ as Lord over your life and Lord over suffering. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. What does it mean to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts? It means to set apart the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts. To set apart Jesus as Lord over our hearts. And if you set the Lord Jesus as Lord over your heart, you're also setting the Lord Jesus as Lord over suffering that you may experience in your life. And so what a wonderful reminder for us to do that. When I think of setting apart the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts, I think of that song by Horatio Spafford, who in the midst of his own suffering, having lost his children, wrote these words, when peace like a river tendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Why? Because when you set the Lord God as Lord, Lord Jesus over your heart as Lord, you have no reason to fear. Even in good times and in bad times, you can trust that the Lord is going to take care of you. You know, Scripture reminds us that this is what the blessed life is all about. This is what the abundant life is all about. It's finding contentment in the care of our shepherd. When we're talking about the blessed life and the abundant life, sometimes we as Christians don't like to use those terms, even though they're biblical terms. And the reason is because our culture has so corrupted them. When we're talking about the blessed life and the abundant life, biblically speaking, we're not talking about health, wealth, and happiness. We're not saying that that God's will for your life is never to suffer, but that you would experience plenty of money in your bank account, healthy relationships. Now, that's part of God wants the best for you, but we're promised that in the life to come. What the abundant life is all about is found in John chapter 10, verses 9 to 10, where Jesus says, I am the door to the sheep. I am the door. He who enters by me shall be saved. That's the abundant life. And then it says he shall go in and out and find pasture. The abundant life is about receiving salvation in Jesus Christ, our Lord, and it's also about God's provision and providing for our every need. Then he says, the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and they may have it in Abundance. The abundant life is about finding contentment in the care of your shepherd because there will be times when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, but you can still trust that he's watching over me. That his word is a light unto my feet and a lamp unto my path, and I can trust him. That's the blessed life. That's the abundant life. That's what it means to set the Lord Jesus a part in your heart as Lord, not just Lord over our mind, over our actions, over our marriage, over our families, but over suffering that we should experience in our lives as well. Prepare for suffering also, fifthly, by uh, being prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have in Jesus. The text goes on to say in verse 15, 
But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Why do we need to be ready to give a, a reason for the hope that is in us? Well, because people will ask us. Now, know that this is given to us in the context of suffering. In the context of suffering undeservedly at that, suffering for the cause of Christ. And so some people may see you and they see the suffering that you're experiencing and they may ask you, why haven't you snapped yet? Why have you continued to set the Lord Jesus Christ apart in your heart as Lord? Why do you continue to follow what is good? I don't understand it. Why is it that when you experience adversity, when, when, when they mistreat you, you don't mistreat them? When they insult you, you don't insult them, but you respond with blessing. I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense. And the text tells us, give a reason for the hope that you have. And so the text begins with us being so set apart to the Lord and setting Christ apart as Lord in our hearts that the world around us takes notice and says, you got to tell me what's the reason for your hope. And after they ask you, you better be ready. What this text is telling us, the, the word for, for be ready to give a reason for the hope, that word reason or defense is where we get the word apologetics, apologia in the Greek. It means getting ready to give a defense. Now, sometimes when we see a text like this, it's good to, be, uh, to be, give an answer to folks in regards to, to why we believe creation and why we believe who Christ is. He died, he, he, he was buried the third day, rose again. We should give a reason for the hope that we have. But, but more than that, we, we need to give a reason for why we continue to, to follow him, to serve him, to honor him as Lord over our life, even in the face of suffering. And so the question I want to ask you this morning is, what's your reason for following him in good times, but also in difficult times? Do you have a reason for the hope that is in you? And when you give a reason for the hope that is in you, you are to do that with meekness and fear. The word meekness is with gentleness. When people ask you, why haven't you snapped under the pressure? Don't snap back at them. Respond to them with gentleness. Take the opportunity to see your opportunity to share your faith and be a good witness for the cause of Christ. God doesn't waste anything, including your suffering. And suffering is often an opportunity for us to shine the light of Christ in the midst of what we are facing. Give them a, a reason for the hope that is in you with gentleness, with meekness, and with fear. Whenever we see the word fear, even in First Peter, it's not the fear of man, it's the fear of God. And as we fear God, we respect those whom God has called us to be a good witness to. And so as I set the, the Jesus apart in my heart as, as Lord, I give others a reason for the hope that is in me. Ready to give a defense for the faith that I have. If I could give you a few takeaways here, the first one is this. Remember your calling as an apologist. I want you to know this morning that God is not called every single one of us to be an expert in, in these fields. You know, you've got different people with their PhDs and those who stand before college campuses and they ask it, they hear questions and then they answer them. All you need to have is an answer for the hope that you have. All you need to have is a testimony of your faith in Jesus and why you trusted him as your savior and Lord. All you need is, is to memorize some scripture and to share the gospel with people. Take them down the Romans road from Romans 3.23 to Romans 6.23. 
To talk about how God demonstrates his own love for us and this while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. To go to Romans 10 verse 9 and say, whoever confesses the Lord Jesus in their hearts and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they shall be saved. That is the hope that you have. Share your testimony. Memorize scriptures and take time to share that hope with others. You are an apologist. And then... Not just recognize the fact that you're an apologist, but take time to speak the truth and do it in love. Uh, as I was prepping this message on Monday, I was watching the news, as I'm sure many of you were, and as I was watching the news, got to see just uh, a school shooting again in Nashville, Presbyterian Covenant School there, and a gunman comes in, shoots three students, kills them, kills three adults, three nine-year-olds and adults, and you see something like that, and your heart just breaks for them. I mean, it cuts really close to home because you think about it, you see it's not just a school, it's a Christian school, and you consider the parents there. I can't imagine not just not knowing whether your child is alive or not and, and learning the news of whether they're alive or not, and then some of those parents hearing the news that their child didn't make it, it just causes your heart to, to, to not know what to do. How do you give a reason for your hope in, with circumstances like that? How do you deal with that? You know, I uh, was reading different articles and watching different things, and I, I learned that one of the young ladies who was killed, Haley Scruggs, her father was a pastor, and he was a pastor, associate pastor up in Dallas at Park City's Presbyterian Church before he came to pastor in Nashville. And, and so that pastor down in Park City's Presbyterian Church who knew Haley, who knew Chris, her father, who knew the, the family, gave this response. And he, he said this, we love the Scruggs family and mourn with them over their precious daughter, Haley. Together we trust in the power of Christ to draw near and to give us comfort and hope we desperately need. I spoke with Chad, this is her father, yesterday afternoon. He was very conversant, admitting he's in shock and this is surreal, but also admitting that the Lord is in control. God shows the bond that a community of faith has and our faith is in Christ. And we feel deeply the pain that, that, that others are going through. We're going to do the, the things that we normally do, the rhythms of the church to come together, to open the word of God, to pray to Christ and to heal. We are honest about the pain and suffering and the sin in this world, but also about the hope that we have so these two things keep us rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I can't ever imagine what I would say, whether I was in his shoes, the, the father's shoes, or anyone who knows what has happened to these individuals. But the question that is asked is, is what would you share with others if they were to ask you, what does God think about that Nashville shooting? What does God say about these things that happen? And I took an opportunity to think about that in light of the text that we're in. And I just wrote down some verses that I, I, I pray that will help us give a reason for the hope that we have. The first one is, is God is close to the brokenhearted. Psalm 34, 18. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to those who have a bro broken heart and saves such as have a contrite heart. That's comforting. Secondly, Jesus understands the pain and suffering that is being experienced. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 15 to 16 says, 
For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What a wonderful thing that Jesus understands our pain, understands our suffering, and can meet us in that time of great suffering. The third thing is God hates violence. Psalm 11 verse Five says, the Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. When you have a gunman walk into a school and murder three children, nine-year-olds, and then kill three adults, we know that that gunman was an agent of Satan because according to John chapter eight, verse 44, he was a murderer from the beginning. And we can take time to know that God hates violence. The fourth thing this morning is our only hope is in Jesus. In Genesis 50 verse 20 it says, but as for you, Joseph is speaking to the mistreatment that he's experienced, the suffering and the pain that he has faced. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people Alive, And some of us will ask, well, what good could come out of that? And it's, number one, the reminder that God is sovereign over our salvation. And knowing that God is sovereign over our salvation, we can trust that, that God is going to do what he wills as a righteous God, as a just God, as a kind, gracious, compassionate God with those who have lost their lives, even children. You know, there are some comforting scriptures in regards to to, to, to children, especially those who, who haven't come to a, a place of full understanding or ability to respond. In Matthew 19, 14, it says, but Jesus said, let the children come to me and do not forbid them for such is the kingdom of heaven. What a wonderful thing to know the heart of God for children. Isaiah 40, verse 11 says, he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. He's a caring shepherd. And in 2 Samuel 12, verse 23, it says, but now he is dead. This is, speaking, this is speaking of the moment when David lost his child. And he says, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him. He shall not return to me. Well, reminded is God is sovereign over salvation. But secondly, the, the good that can come out is there is a reunion with anyone who has trusted in Jesus Christ. John chapter 3 verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him shouldn't perish but have everlasting life. Do we have all the answers? No. Did I give you all the answers? No. But I can tell you this, our hope is in Jesus because he is our only hope. We trust in him and in Terrible circumstances like this, like school shootings at a Christian school, all you can help but see it and think to yourself and be reminded, life is brief and life is precious. Don't you dare take this day for granted. If you haven't trusted in Christ as your Savior and Lord, the day of salvation is today. Get right with the Lord. Don't allow sin to separate you from him. Trust in Christ and him crucified and receive forgiveness of sins and everlasting life in his name because Jesus is our only hope. Give a reason for the hope that we have. And then lastly this morning, keep a good conscience. Keep a good conscience. 
as we continue in our text. Verse 16 says, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. What we're encouraged here is to keep a good conscience. To, to keep a good conscience is to walk in obedience to the Lord in his word. To keep a good conscience because we know that our consciences can be seared is to become followers of what is good. To, to not only receive the righteousness of Christ, Knowing in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin, or he, speaking of the Father, made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The first step is to receive the righteousness of God and then to walk in that righteousness enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit who resides in us. We are to keep a, a good conscience. And the reason we should keep a good conscience is because those who speak lies or those who slander, those who are followers of Jesus Christ, they will be put to shame. It's a reminder of our witness before an unbelieving world. And even when we should experience hostility in light of that, we continue to place our faith and our trust in Jesus as a witness for him. And then verse 17 concludes, and it says, For it is better if it is the will of God if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than doing evil. Earlier in 1 Peter, Peter said, what benefit is to you if you suffer because you deserve it? <laughs> you sin or you do something wrong and, and you suffer justly. But it says, if it's God's will. In other words, God sometimes allows us to experience suffering. And we know that nothing can touch us unless God who is sovereign allows it to. And so if you are facing suffering, our step is not simply to say, God, give me all the answers, because if you even had all the answers, that's not what you really need. What we're invited to do is not to seek all the answers, but to simply trust the one who has them. And in the midst of suffering, even unjust suffering, even suffering for the cause of Christ, take time to remember. Take time to remember, as we read here, that it's sometimes God's will for us to experience that, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. This morning, as we draw our text to a close, I, I want to remind you, whether you're preparing for it or you're experiencing symptoms of it, I want to take some time to remind you of your motivation. This week, I want to invite you in light of Holy Week as we reflect on the final week of Jesus' life as he entered into Jerusalem, as he went to die on a cross for our sins and then to rise from the dead three days later. To be reminded of, of why he came, why he died, and why he rose, defeating sin, death, and Satan on the cross, and then, and then ratifying that three days later through his resurrection. My prayer for all of us is, is that we would be so impressed and stand in awe at who Jesus is and what he's accomplished, that we would declare Jesus is worth living for. Jesus is worth dying for. And Jesus is worth suffering with. As we close this morning, I want to give our church an opportunity to respond by an invitation. And if you're here today and, and you came to this Palm Sunday and you are not in a right standing with God, you know there's something that separates you from God and it's your sin. And you want to be made right with Christ. This morning, we want to pray with you and we want to pray for you. In a moment, we're going to invite our elders to come up as the worship team comes and 
And if you need prayer this morning for your salvation or you're wrestling through the truths of what it means to follow Christ, we want to give you an opportunity to come and to pray with us. As I pray in a moment, I'm going to lead you in that prayer of salvation and give you an opportunity, if you mean it from your heart, to trust in Christ as your Savior and Lord. If you're here this morning and you would say, you know, I've lost my focus and my love and my devotion for Jesus. You know, I've lost the motivation knowing that Christ is not just worth living for, but dying for and suffering with because of who he is and what he's accomplished on my behalf and all those who may trust in him. And I want to recommit my life to him. I've been enjoying the passing pleasures of sin, but I don't want to follow that path anymore. I'm a follower of Christ and I want to recommit my life to him. We want to give you an invitation to come and pray with us this morning. And I also want to let you know, as a church, we believe in the power of prayer. The reason we believe in the power of prayer is because of the one we are praying to. What makes our prayers powerful is not what we say or how we pray, but as we pray in the name of Jesus, in accordance with his will, we see that God is able to do what he has called us and what he's going to do. And so this morning, as you enter into this final week, maybe there's someone you're praying for that you want to invite them to Easter. Maybe there's someone you're praying for their salvation. Maybe they'll come to Good Friday service. And so whoever those are, I want to take you, just invite you as we sing and as we, as we pray, we want to invite you to come and pray with us. If you have any need this morning, physically, financially, if, if you want to just pray for your, your spiritual relationship with the Lord, we're here to pray for you. And so as I pray, I'd invite our, our uh, elders to come. I want to invite you to pray, pray with us and our worship team to come up. Let me pray for us now. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, we come to a text like this, and uh, it's a difficult text to read. It's a more difficult text to apply. But Father, we, we know that uh, as we read your word, that what motivates us to, to even desire to put into practice the words that we read about is is who you are, who Christ is, what he accomplished through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And Father, we pray in all things that this would be our motivation. Uh, Father, this morning we want to say we exalt you. We exalt Christ in our lives. We exalt Christ as Lord over our lives. Father, if there's someone here this morning who hasn't trusted in Christ as their Savior and Lord, but would like to, I pray that they in this moment can say this prayer as I say it. Father, I thank you that you've made clear to me the good news about Jesus. I admit this morning that I've sinned, and that sin separates me from you. And I know the consequence of this sin. It's an eternity without you and your people forever. But this morning, I want to confess Jesus as my Savior, the one who came from heaven to earth to die on my behalf. Today I receive the forgiveness of sins. I make him my Lord, the one I'm going to follow all the days of my life into eternity. Father, I thank you for the assurance of heaven and the assurance of everlasting life. Father, I know there's some here this morning who have lost their love and their devotion for you. Maybe have found themselves desiring the passing pleasures of sin. I pray that they can pray this as I prayed. Father, I come before you knowing that if I confess my sins, you are faithful and just to forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. 
This morning, I turn my back towards that sin. I turn my back towards that lifestyle. I take my focus off of the things of this world and the things of my flesh, and I fix my eyes on Christ and Him crucified. Father, I receive your forgiveness and the righteousness you provide through Jesus Christ. And I'm going to continue to follow you all the days of my life. Father, I pray for all those here who have individuals on their minds who do not know the Lord. We pray for opportunities to share our faith with them, to be a good witness for, to them and for them to receive Christ as their Savior and their Lord. Father, during this time of prayer and worship, may you be honored and glorified in everything we say and do. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.